This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. From Christianity Today, you're listening to The Bulletin, a podcast about the people, events, and issues that are shaping our world. Today on our show, I'm going to be joined by Noah Rothman from National Review to talk about the latest on the war in Ukraine. Then, I'll be joined by my colleagues at CT, Russell Moore and Nicole Martin. We're going to talk more about what's happening at Ukraine, but we're also going to talk about the conspiracy theories that are being spouted by Robert F. Kennedy Jr. and a new song by Jason Aldean that's making the rounds called Try That in a Small Town. We'll ask whether or not that song is promoting a certain kind of political, social, and racial violence and aggression. Stay with us. So it's been almost a year and a half since Russia invaded Ukraine. It's the first time we've seen full-scale conventional warfare on the European continent in almost a century. Certainly the first time in a generation this kind of conflict has been visible in a first world environment. You're seeing cities, suburbs, shopping malls, hospitals, power plants, and the devastation has been staggering. According to U.S. estimates, 42,000 Ukrainian civilians have been killed, 20,000 Ukrainian soldiers have been killed, 50,000 Russian soldiers have been killed, hundreds of thousands more have been wounded. Cities like Mariupol and Bakhmut have basically been leveled. Infrastructure has been destroyed across Ukraine as well. The great surprise of this war has been that it's really been a war at all. I think when invasion seemed imminent, many were predicting that Russian tanks would make quick work of marching to Kyiv and occupying the country. But it's been a story of incredible resilience on behalf of the Ukrainian people, the leadership of Volodymyr Zelensky. And that's really been the story of the war. And so has been this slow process of adaptation by Western powers to those realities, figuring out how they support Ukraine in the meantime. Much has happened in Ukraine in the last few weeks. There was a brief mutiny slash coup attempt inside the Russian military. Counteroffensive by the Ukrainian forces has begun. And a NATO summit took place recently where allies discussed how to continue to support and expand their support for the Ukrainian resistance. Joining me to talk about all of these things is Noah Rothman, senior writer for National Review. Noah, welcome to The Bulletin. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. So this, this is a subject I'm fascinated by. It's something that I follow closely, but even in my own interest in the story and desire to keep up with it, sometimes I feel like I lose the forest for the trees on this in terms of why this war is even taking place. Why is it the kind of thing that that we're invested in and caring about. So so maybe let's start way back for a moment and you can just help us help our listeners remember like why is there a war in Ukraine right now? What are the terms for what does Russia want and why should the West care? Why should Americans care? So it depends on who you're asking why we have a war of this scale now. Let's back up a little bit to April 2022 when Moscow put a whole lot of forces on the border, 100,000 troops or what have you, and threatened, it appeared, under the guise of exercises, to be prepared to invade. They were talked out of this. The Biden administration provided requisite assurances, and this feint sort of dissolves. This was 21. Precisely. And then, in the summer of that year, we had a debacle of an evacuation from Afghanistan. 13 American service personnel died. Many other NATO allied soldiers died. And in the intervening months, the months between February 22 and, and that evacuation in 21, the buildup begins again. And at this point, there's no way to dissuade them. The administration tries, they sort of talk themselves into the idea that there could be concessions that would be granted to Moscow that they would accept. These came to nothing. We got reports in the New York Times that this threat of an invasion was very serious and the administration believed, and, and many observers believed, including me, as you said in the outset, that this whole event would produce a rump state in the west of Ukraine. It would be occupied functionally by Russian forces relatively early on in an, in an invasion scenario. And the administration was preparing to support an insurgency. And they were preparing to, according to the New York Times reporting, they were going to support the opening up of weapon stores in Ukraine grab what you can, 
and make uh, asymmetrical war on Russian forces for the indefinite future, which would have been its own nightmare for the continent. And it turns out, and I didn't revise my view, and I don't think many Russian experts revised their view, that Russia's military modernization program, which had been involved in over the course of the last decade, wouldn't be tremendously successful until the airport at Hostomel did not fall. So in the very early days of this invasion, even before this long convoy of armed vehicles cascading down from Belarus to Kiev became stalled and turned into a shooting gallery, there was an attempt to seize this airport by air, and it failed. It was a disaster. And it was only the first of several disasters over the course of this war. In tactical terms, Ukraine or Russia's rather had to give up on fronts in Kiev. It's had to give up on fronts in and around Kharkiv. And it had to retreat across the Dnieper after having captured Kyrgyzstan, which is the only regional capital that it was able to secure over the course of this war. The impetus for the war is a desire on Russia's part to either forcibly or persuasively dissuade Ukraine from integrating further with Western economic structures, and to say nothing of military structures, but the primary impetus for this war was its desire to integrate economically with the West. And Ukraine's impetus for the war is defending itself and its sovereignty from an existential threat. And Ukraine's often referred to as the breadbasket of Europe. I mean, it was, you know, there was a reason the the USSR wanted to integrate it. There was a reason Hitler wanted to conquer it. You know, talk about its economic importance and its economic influence in the region as well. Well, as you describe, Ukraine is the killing fields of Europe. It is a place that is soaked in blood with being the focus of invasions over the course of history. And as you say, it's got a very significant agricultural base. It does produce a fair amount of cereal grains that are exported around the world. It also has a decent industrial base, but the industrial base is largely in Russian control right now. It's generally in the east of the country and the southeast of the country. But as Russia sees it in its historic conception of its own security, It is an insurance policy. It is the depth that it needs to absorb an invading force and attrit that invading force so that by the time it reaches cities like Rostov-on-Don or gets close to Moscow, for example, it will have been an attenuated force. And that is what you learn in undergrad courses (laughs) in in Russian history. And it's really, it's a tidy narrative about how Russia views its security threats and and its interests in its region. And for Europe, it is, as you say, a key transit point and a source of a lot of agricultural products that are absolutely vital, not just for Europe, but mostly, in fact, for the Middle East and North Africa. Hmm. And a lot of that has been interrupted by this campaign. There have been efforts, halting efforts, to maintain the trade in foodstuffs and grains and what have you to the rest of the world. And only in the last 48 hours or so, one of those deals that was negotiated by the United Nations fell through following a lot of groundwork on Moscow's part. But a trigger for it is supposedly the most recent attack on the on the, a bridge, a bridge over the Kerch Strait that Moscow constructed after it captured Kiev, or rather the Crimean Peninsula in 2014. And this has been struck on a couple of occasions by Ukrainian forces. It is presently disabled. And that was what they said, oh, we're going to we're going to stop this grain deal shipment. So the idea here is to communicate to the rest of the world that Moscow can do a lot of really bad things, not just to Ukraine, but the rest of the world. It can starve the region if it wants to. It can destroy population centers if it wants to, as it did when it destroyed a very large dam, one of many dams that it destroyed, but a very large dam on the Dnieper, which flooded a lot of agricultural land and flooded the, the city of Kyrgyzstan. It is trying to communicate insofar as it can, without being explicit about it, that it has farther to go here. And people in the West who are sensitive to escalation in this conflict see it. But I'm not sure that even Russia has the courage of its own convictions, because they do not advertise these destabilizing, inhumane tactics for what they are. Right. That Those are blanks that are filled in by anxious types in the West who perceive any support for defense against a nuclear armed superpower as being tantamount to becoming a co-belligerent and therefore being declared a co-belligerent and being drawn into a potentially existential war with, with Moscow. What's the state of things now where, you know, 
What's the state of the war? What's the state of the the, the Ukrainian counteroffensive that began earlier this summer? Right. So as I said before, we've seen three fronts collapse over the course of this war, which is already enough success to justify continued investment, I think, in Ukraine's self-defense. Over the course of the winter, Ukraine, much to the consternation of its Western sponsors, focused a lot of attention on, as you said, the city of Bakhmut, which is just above Donetsk, which is one of those cities that fell in 2014, which will tell you just about how far Russia's campaign has gotten them. But they defended this city with the assumption that if Russia, if it were to fall to Russia, Russia would advance its artillery, push Ukraine further into the interior of its country, push the fighting further towards NATO's borders, and that would be bad, and they didn't want that. So they put up this significant defense over the course of the winter there, and in the months that intervened after the retreat from Kyrgyzstan and during the defense of Bakhmut, this line that goes across the state of uh, Ukraine and then inches up to the Russian border once it gets near Donetsk, was heavily fortified. We've seen the most deep and layered defensive arrangements in that area of Ukraine that we've seen in Europe since World War II. Dragon's teeth, multi-layered trenches, armed checkpoints, and and a lot of mines, layers and layers of anti-personnel mines. And Ukraine has struggled to get through these initial defenses. They've made some progress, but they've struggled to break through, break through a line and force Russia to retrench in order to defend defensive preparations further back, further back in these lines of defenses. And we just haven't seen a kind of breakout that we've seen in those three, similar to those three collapses. Now, that doesn't mean we won't. I don't think we're going to be able to fully evaluate this counteroffensive until late in the fall, perhaps mid-October, early November. But it is a binary. It's not like we won't be able to judge whether this offensive is successful. Either it will break the Russian lines and force retrenchment, or it won't. There's still a significant amount of combat power that has not been brought to bear here. We've Mm -hmm. heard a lot of American officials say that, most recently Mark Milley, say that. So I'm not willing to judge this as a failure just yet. But it has been slower going than I think Ukraine's Western sponsors would have liked to see. Yeah, let's let's talk about the Western support, because that story in itself has been fascinating. Every step along the way, there have been these sort of red lines drawn. Okay, we're going to offer this and not this. We'll... We won't give, you know, we'll give this armament, but we won't give F-16s. We'll give this kind of tank, we won't give that kind of tank. And it's like almost every time that those kinds of statements are made, you fast forward six, eight weeks, ten weeks into the war, and it's like, well, actually, yeah, let's give them the Abrams tanks. Let's let's give them the Patriot batteries. Is there something strategic about the way the West has done that support? Is there some advantage to sort of dripping out what they need rather than sort of front-loading and saying, you know, hey, here's everything you need to defend yourselves? Or has that just been sort of the nature of the politics and the resilience of the Ukrainians going, well, they've they've lasted this long, let's give them the next thing? I think if you were being very charitable, you could say that there was a strategic rationale to it earlier on in the campaign. There is none anymore. Initially in the campaign, the Biden administration and some NATO governments, there's division in the NATO governments, right? There's, And that's part of the problem that Joe Biden has to has to navigate here is that there's capitals on the frontier of the of the NATO alliance that are far more gung-ho about supporting Ukraine's independence and, and in, in lieu of their own. And then you have Western capitals like Paris and Berlin, which are invested, but maybe a little bit more hesitantly have wild cards like Berlin and Turkey that try to play both sides. And so trying to manage these competing interests. In the beginning of the campaign, the Biden administration engaged in a variety of negotiations with itself over the idea that its material support for Ukraine had to be robust, but not so robust that Moscow would view it as an escalation. And so it talked itself into the idea, with no input from Moscow, that certain platforms, as you said, fixed-wing aircraft, tanks, long-range missiles, multiple launch rocket systems, Patriot missile batteries, what have you, all of these would be construed as escalatory and could compel Russia to similarly escalate on the battlefield maybe even wage an even more genocidal campaign of ethnic cleansing than the one it's waging right now. It's escalatory insofar as these munitions are going to be perceived by Russia as, as the United States, or the just the United States, frankly, not just the West, the United States engaging in belligerency in this conflict. They're basically a combatant undeclared 
And it's only a matter of time before Moscow treats us as such. And then when they do, a cascading series of, of attacks and reprisals could spiral out of control and get us into something really, really dangerous. I find that unpersuasive as well, not just because Russia's behavior over the course of this war from tanks to aircraft, to loitering drones, to long range rockets, to MLRS, all these things were supposed to provoke a response from Russia that never materialized. And what Russia, what we're doing right now is meeting in symmetrical, albeit belated ways, Russian actions. That doesn't constitute an escalation. That's reciprocity. And Moscow mm -hmm. has treated it that way. I mean, to a lot, to a significant extent, and much to my frustration, the people who presume to speak for Moscow's interests in this conflict so rarely take into account Russian behavior to justify their claims. They speak for Russia on behalf of Russia without input from Russia, and in fact disregard Russian behavior and statements in order to justify a in a, a response that I think is politically motivated and justified primarily by domestic political concerns. That applies to the United States, of course, but it also applies to England and Poland and France and, and Germany. Let's talk about some of those domestic concerns, actually, because that that's another part of the story that's been so fascinating and I think starts to get at some things I think our listeners are going to be particularly interested in, which is the partisan lines upon which this conflict maps in the U.S. is sort of the exact opposite of what it might have looked like a decade ago. There has generally been sort of right-wing hesitancy, skepticism, even pro-Putin kind of rhetoric coming from certain portions of the right during this war. Can you talk a little bit about why it's mapped this way and what implications, you know, given given where the war is and, you know, the upcoming elections, like how, how does the state of American politics shape what you expect to come from the weeks and months ahead here? Well, it's a bit of a digression, but it is a grand theory of American politics. Dovetails with a book I wrote last year, The Rise of the New Puritans, Fighting Back Against Progressives' War on Fun. Wherever fine books are sold. Wherever fine books are sold, which posits that <laughs> as the left has grown less attached to liberalism, classical or otherwise, and more towards progressivism, it has adopted its conceits and habits of mind, which is why it's waging moral crusades in ways that the live and let live generation of the 1960s, 1970s, late, late 20th century would have found anathema. But that is where the comfort zone is of the progressive movement emerging as it did out of the ashes of the Puritan experiment in mainline Protestant New England. That's where progressivism is and where this movement's sympathies lie. Likewise, if you extend that to the Republican Party, Republicans' comfort zone is in being hostile to conflicts abroad and American commitments abroad. I mean, this is where Robert Taft you know, made his name. And you can see in much the same way that I posit that the progressive or the liberal movements drift towards, for example, licentiousness and permissiveness was anathema, was kind of a weird sui generis moment in the late 20th century that really doesn't correspond to the movement's politics. You could say that America's extroversion in the Cold War on the right was something of a departure from the traditional sentiments that are conventionally Republican. And so I think it's particularly American and certainly very Republican to be skeptical of conflicts abroad, support for conflicts abroad, that the United States is not party to, and we can debate whether or not we have interests in them, what have you. But that's not bizarre from a grand historical perspective from sure. Republicans. And as the Donald Trump movement overtook the Republican Party, and it espoused a very Jacksonian view towards foreign conflicts. Now, it was very confused, but in rhetorical terms, and we evaluate only rhetorical terms, not the president's actual record in office, he gave voice to that sort of hostility and skepticism of American commitments abroad. I think that's a flawed conception of what America's strategic, grand strategic interests are in Europe, and to say nothing of the rest of the world. And I think it's a little politically discomforting for Republican voters right now because the comfort zone, the place that you want to retreat to, is this idea that the weak-kneed Democrat in the, off in, in the White House isn't seen to American interests in the robust fashion mm -hmm. that a red-blooded Republican president would. That sort of strikes me as where the comfort zone is. 
And you see a little bit of that in Donald Trump's rhetoric. He says, you know, I'm going to end the war on day one, which is not to say maybe we're going around blowing things up. But we do have a, an extroverted, muscular presence on the world stage. We are not shrinking back behind our oceans into Fortress America and retrenching. We are engaged. We are extroverted. We are out there. And subsequently, when asked to explain himself, Donald Trump says, well, how, you know, how are you going to end the war in day one? Well, he says, I'll force everybody to sit down. You take these terms or you're not getting any money. He goes, okay, well, Putin doesn't take your terms. What's next? Well, we arm Ukraine to the teeth. We give them everything they want and more. And you guys are going to really suffer on the battlefield. We're going to bleed you white. And that, to me, is, again, where the Republican ethos is. Just in a basic, really, root of your marrow sort of idea of what America's presence should be on the world stage. Republicans do believe, while they are skeptical of conflicts abroad, and skeptical, certainly, of the export of taxpayer dollars abroad, which is, again, a misapprehension of what what the aid that we're providing Ukraine actually does. But regardless... They also believe the United States is a force for good on the world stage. The loudest voices on the populist right do not. Mm-hmm. The more technocratically minded think tankers who populate uh, social media with posts on a semi-hourly basis, they don't. They're skeptical of America's presence in the world stage, its motives, its values, and the way in which it goes about achieving them. I don't think Republican voters share those concerns. I think that's mm-hmm. a highly intellectual, very narrow understanding of politics motivated by and a desire to reorient American foreign policy. Last question before I let you go and, and briefly if you if you can. The other question that I think a lot of people in our audience are going to be interested in, because there's a lot of con- sort of confusing storytelling around this, is the Ukrainian Orthodox Church and what's happening in there. Can you give us just sort of the play-by-play of what's happening in terms of suppression of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church? How much of that is about the war, how much of that is hyped, sort of anti-war propaganda. What do you make of these stories about the Ukrainian Orthodox Church? I think a lot of it is owed to anti-war propaganda. So there are two Orthodox churches in Ukraine, and it didn't begin with the war, that there was right. a schism uh, in between the Ukrainian church and the one that's led by Moscow and uh, Patriarch Kirill. Uh, that began in 2019. But there was a just earthquake of a migration from the Moscow-led Orthodox Church to the Ukrainian Orthodox Church when that schism occurred in 2019. Today, I think it's roughly 80%, to the extent we have reliable polling, 80% of Ukrainians belong to this Ukrainian church. Now, during the war, when the war erupted, <clears throat> the Moscow-led church, in rhetorical terms and material terms, supported Russia's efforts to subsume the Russia, the Ukrainian population <clears throat> into the Federation proper, and some really dark, ugly rhetorical slights against the Ukrainian people and endorsement of a brutal, genocidal ethnic cleansing on the part of the, of the Ukrainian, the, uh, the Russians. But it wasn't just that. <clears throat> there were a variety of, of clergymen who were apparently providing aid and support for Russian invading invading forces. There were videos of congregants who were celebrating Russia's awakening in its genocidal conflict. And the government in Kyiv moved to suppress the church, moved to, through legislation, not just executive action, try to get a handle on this church and disrupt its activities in the name of its existential war of self-defense. And in the West... That has been characterized as religious persecution. Tucker Carlson in particular calls it religious persecution, even though we're talking about very the same denomination, not just the same church. I find that to be an opportunistic narrative that elides a lot of very important distinctions about what's actually going on here. And it's actually rather dark insofar as it's described as of Vladimir Zelensky persecuting Christians, which is not something you would say if Vladimir Zelensky was himself a Christian. Mm-hmm. It's the sort of thing you would say if he was not a Christian. And he's not. He's Jewish. Right. right. And it's the sort of thing that pings in the subconscious a lot of very dark sentiments about mm-hmm. what this guy is, what he's doing, and what he wants to achieve. The Ukrainian people do not feel apparently very persecuted. There's, It's hard to find a poll where... Zelensky has less than 90% support from these people who are all Orthodox Christians themselves. It is 
the fact of the matter is that the idea of, for some, especially Western enlightened liberals, the idea of anything even resembling this kind of anti-religious attack, even in wartime, is just anathema. It cannot be accepted. It's it's a grotesque violation of the just you know human rights. Um, but that's just not how the social contract is written in Eastern Europe. There is no distinction between the churches or the state. Neither none would observe it. None would even see it as anything rational. Right. Uh, the church is an extension, and Kirill is an extension of Moscow. It does Moscow's political and military will. And, and there's reporting, you know, there's reporting in various places that the patriarch was at one point a agent of the KGB. I mean, an FSB, uh, yeah, yeah. A, a, a security <laughs> agent. Yes, that's right. That's and that's not bizarre. I mean, right. that's that's a sort of pipeline that in in for particularly in the Soviet times after after World War II when Stalin needed to revive the church to have some sort of a national organizing principle. That's exactly where they came from. They came from the right. intelligence services because they right. were an arm of the intelligence services. Right. This right. is the sort of thing that wouldn't strike a Russian as bizarre. It wouldn't really register as you with the Ukrainian as bizarre. And it's only because we have our enlightened social covenant around the freedom to, to worship that we see it as anathema. And so it's important to describe this as it is rather than in, in, in chauvinistic terms, filtering their experience through our own. But also it's important to avoid the temptation towards anti-Semitic caricatures of yeah. the president and what he's doing because persecuting Christians is not what this is. Yeah. Well, Noah Rothman, thank you so much for joining us here on the Bulletin this week. I could talk to you about this all day. Noah is a senior writer at National Review, and his most recent book is The Rise of the New Puritans. Hope to talk to you again soon, Noah. Thanks for joining us on the Bulletin. Me too. Thank you, Mike. Okay. Joining me now are my colleagues at CT, Russell Moore and Nicole Martin. Russell, Nicole, welcome back to the Bulletin. Hey, Mike. Thanks, Mike. So I just had this conversation with Noah Rothman talking about kind of the state of things in this conflict in the Ukraine. And I want to pull back for a minute and talk about how the church is responding to the war, what we're seeing, what questions are being asked about the war from inside the church, and both how that's being shaped by our understanding of the church's role in the world and how that's being shaped by sort of the political, cultural realities that Christians are living with every day. Let me start just broadly, and whichever one of you wants to sort of jump at this. When the subject comes up amongst you know friends or when you're out speaking places or serving churches or congregations and the war in Ukraine comes up, how do you see Christians responding? What questions are you hearing from and concerns are you hearing raised about the subject? I'm going after Russell. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, well, I'm not finding any specifically Christian questions about uh, the war in Ukraine, which is, I think, probably because there's such a low level of understanding of what's happening just generally in American life. And that fits in with the way that Americans typically think about foreign policy generally. And so I'm not hearing any specifically sorts of uh, just war questions or, or those kinds of things right now. But I think that one of the things that worries me is that in American life, we tend to get exhausted and people tend to just turn away after a while. And I'm very concerned about that because the stakes here are really high. Absolutely. I mean, I think I haven't heard any explicit conversation about it, which is also worrisome because you can look back in the ways that the American church responds to extended war. We do grow apathetic. We do have short attention spans and we tune in only when it affects us personally, which is where another challenge arises. Because if we were to see this as just a war in Ukraine, then we can keep a distance. But one of the larger concerns is the global implications and how the American church really needs to kind of lean into global implications. If we do nothing, we do have issues with grain. Uh, we can bring it home and say, hey, if nothing changes, you may not have the same rice that you have, the same quinoa. I heard someone say that the other day. That's crazy. They were like, you know, I'm really concerned about how the war in Ukraine is going to affect my quinoa. I actually heard them say that. But this is this is the microcosm of American right. life and sadly the microcosm sometimes of the American church. It only becomes pertinent when it affects us personally. 
Well, and I think what's interesting about that comment is like there is some truth to that. Like yes. your brand of quinoa may not be available, <laughs> but also – We have we have never had quinoa in yeah. this Mississippian house, Mike. So it, well, that, that is one thing that will not affect me I envy, at all. I envy that. I, I wish that were true in my own home. Will, As a matter of fact, I pronounced it quinoa until uh, <laughs> very recently, I hate to say. That's but, great. But I mean one of the implications of this though is that like – yeah, you might not get your quinoa. North Africa might not get any grain at all. That's right. That's right. During a, a drought. Season, during mm-hmm. a drought. And so there's those kinds of implications. There's also the fact that you've got tens of thousands dead, hundreds of thousands seriously wounded, millions displaced, whole cities, suburbs, you know, much of the sort of eastern infrastructure of the entire country is destroyed. And it's a level of human loss, suffering, and devastation that really is unknown in the West in our lifetime, for sure. And the stakes are an empowered authoritarian dictator who wants to restore Russian empire. And uh, Ukraine is not going – I mean, we've historically seen this will not be the last step. And so you easily can have a situation where the kids in your youth group right now might be having to fight a war because – Russia comes after our NATO allies Mm -hmm. and we keep our commitments as we should. We don't Mm -hmm. want that to happen. We want peace through a victory right now for Ukraine, Mm -hmm. not peace in terms of throwing up a sacrificial lamb to Putin because we've seen how that ends. Mm -hmm. Right. And part of what I think is fascinating, and we didn't get into this in detail in my conversation with Noah, but he's written about this, is that there was a forum in Iowa last week. The war came up. There was this really interesting moment where Tucker Carlson was interviewing Mike Pence, and Pence's support for the war came up. And this moment went viral where Carlson asked him about, you know, well, what about all the things that are happening in the streets and in America and, you know, problems with crime and various sort of hot button issues? Pence's response was, I'm not worried about that. He goes on to talk about Ukraine and he says, I'm not worried about all these things taking place at home because we can do two things at once. We can handle these things at once. And, you know, part of the rationale for that is that it really is an incredibly low investment to support Mm -hmm. Ukraine, to give them what they need. Noah said it's about 4% of our national defense budget. The other part of it that I think people don't realize is that When we talk about spending money on aid to Ukraine, it's not like we're packing cash on pallets and flying it overseas. We're buying weapons from factories in Alabama, Mississippi, Tennessee, Mm -hmm. South Carolina. And so we're basically like paying Americans to make weapons. The money is basically staying in the country and the weapons are being shipped Mm -hmm. overseas to defend a country against an adversary whose resources are being utterly drained in this conflict. That is to our advantage. But I think, you know, I do think that there is something difficult for a lot of Christians. I mean, I I grew up largely sort of post-Cold War. You know, I'm a child of the 90s, so the the Cold War was mostly over in my growing up years. And so there's the idea of thinking that it's good to see a foreign adversary's military capabilities, you know, diminished in a war, that we want Russia to lose, like that kind of stuff, I think sometimes rubs people's consciences in funny ways where they go, well, as a Christian, should I, should Mm -hmm. I be cheering for, I mean, I know I don't want to cheer for Russia to win in Ukraine. Should I be cheering that they lose, that they, Mm. that they pay a price for this? Spoiler alert. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me, tell me more, Russell. Tell me more. Well, because, because the, I mean, one of the things that's so slippery and I think uh, used toward evil is this idea of, well, what we ought to be hoping for is peace in Ukraine. And of course, yes, ultimately we we ought to be wanting peace, but there's a particular kind of peace. Mm-hmm. I mean, what some people mean by peace is uh, that means that you have innocent Ukrainians slaughtered, children being forcibly deported, people's land being annexed. And you don't say anything about that, and that's right. peace. I mean, this is we have the example in scripture of Naboth's vineyard, in which uh, Ahab just decided, I want this, I'm going to take it. And this is presented not as just some governmental shuffling of border disputes, this was unjust. And in this case, it's not just that it's unjust, it's that it's unjust in a way that has implications for everybody else. 
Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, why sometimes when you hear this language and also the language you brought up, the Pence conversation, I want to defend him on this because he yeah. didn't say, I'm not concerned about right. these. Carlson said, well, your concern is for how many tanks the Ukrainians have, not with this. And and uh, Pence said, that's not my concern. My yeah. concern is. But that's always the argument is that if you are for global leadership in any way, that means that you are for not doing anything at home. I mean, that's what the old mm-hmm. America First movement was saying during the Depression and the lead up to World War II. We've got our own problems here, America First. Well, mm-hmm. turns out you can fight World War II and a Great Depression at the same time pretty well. And so mm-hmm. I think that language can be just so easily used in cheap kinds of ways that's easy for somebody in the United States to say, ah, you know, they just need to stop fighting mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> rather than rather than saying, okay, what are what are our commitments to people here? Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Particularly when you look at the Russian campaign, which is one that you have countless documented cases now of war crimes, mass yeah. graves, mass mm-hmm. murders, mm-hmm. mass campaigns of rape. I mean, that has been a Russian war policy going back for centuries that you mm-hmm. conquer a city and that the Russian military pretty much rapes every woman in town. And that's not fantasy fake news no, stuff. No, that's really no. that's really happened and it's and it's well documented and that's what will the end of this war is not a, like you say the the peace comes down. No, the end of this war is Russia finishes doing that from border to border inside yeah. the country. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's dark stuff, but stuff we, yeah. we need to not look away from. It's dark stuff, but it's amazing to think that here we are this long in and the Ukrainians are fighting them to, yes. at the very least, a stalemate. I mean, right. there's uh, right. there's the, the inspiration of that, that you really do have a people who aren't just going to give up on one another. That's, that's, right. that's light in the darkness, I think. Agreed. Absolutely. All right. We will be right back. Nicole here. If you're looking for a podcast that features inspiring conversations with theologians, ministers, and pastors, then I recommend adding the acclaimed show No Small Endeavor to your podcast queue. Produced by Great Feeling Studios and PRX, No Small Endeavor explores what it means to live a good life. Each episode, host Lee C. Camp sits down with special guests like the queen of Christian pop, Amy Grant, and pastor and theologian Tish Harrison Warren to ask what it means to live a life worth living. If you're looking for somewhere to start, check out their new episode with Malcolm Gladwell, New York Times bestselling author and host of the wildly popular podcast, Revisionist History. They explore how Malcolm became a stellar storyteller, some of the things he may or may not regret, and so much more. It's absolutely worth a listen. Don't miss out. Follow No Small Endeavor wherever you get your podcasts. So over on the Democratic primary race, there are challengers for the Democratic nomination for president. One of them is Robert F. Kennedy Jr., challenging Joe Biden. RFK Jr. is the son of Bobby Kennedy, nephew of John F. and Ted Kennedy, also husband of Curb Your Enthusiasm star Cheryl Hines. RFK was in the news this past weekend. Before we get to that, it's a little background for those who aren't familiar with RFK. He's a, an environmental lawyer, and he's had a sort of lifelong career of fringe conspiracy theories He's been an anti-vax advocate for a long, long time, promoting debunked claims, linking vaccines to things like autism. He is an HIV AIDS denialist, which is basically someone who does not believe that the AIDS virus is caused by the HIV virus. He's dabbled in all kinds of other conspiracy theories about the deaths of his father, the deaths of his uncle. Last month, he was on the Jordan Peterson podcast saying that there are chemicals in the water that make frogs gay and turn men gay and are the cause of all the sort of gender confusion that's going on in our culture. People familiar with the viral clips of Alex Jones screaming about gay frogs on his podcast (laughs) or the songs that were formed out of those rants will be familiar with that argument. It's the exact same arguments, this this wild sort of environmentalist stuff. 
So with that caveat, RFK Jr., who is polling at between 10 and 15% in the primary polls in New Hampshire right now, just this past week, video leaked in which he was saying that it could be shown that COVID-19, the virus, was designed to spare two ethnic groups, the Chinese and Ashkenazi Jews. <laughs> RFK Jr. is getting lots of airtime. He's mm-hmm. been promoted on the Joe Rogan podcast several times. Rogan has basically said, hey, if anybody wants to wants to argue RFK's theories, come on my show. Come on and debate him. And that sort of internet meme of debate me seems to follow him everywhere we go. What do we make of a guy like RFK Jr. coming to prominence in a time like this? There's so much to be said. <laughs> Where shall we start? <laughs> Well, okay. So first of all, I think what we've learned from Trump is that our society is easily swayed by at least the perception of influence, the perception of platform, and by name recognition. This is why Arnold Schwarzenegger, with no political background, can you know take office. This is you know, the the Trump phenomenon reminds us that our American public is often more swayed by what they think they know of a person than what might actually be true. So I think the fact that he is even any place on the scene, the fact that he's getting any airtime has very little to do with his crazy thoughts and more to do with his name and his constant appeal to his family and to the Kennedy name. But I find it so interesting that either there is a mental health disconnect that causes someone to make a statement about a virus protecting certain groups of people, but also say that he's more pro-Israel than any other Jewish Democrat. I mean, there's got to be some disconnects here. But my fear again, and I go back to Trump, my fear is not what he says. My fear is the number of people who actually believe him, who would not chuckle at some of the absurd things that have been said. And I I attribute that to just this culture of lifting up influence without any other requirement than have a good name and have lots of followers. Yeah, I mean, part of the problem with RFK Jr. is the question of, do you directly refute this nonsense? Mm -hmm. And if you do, is that just part of the game of furthering it on down the line? And I have genuinely mixed feelings about that because, Mm -hmm. I mean, the scripture says both answer Mm -hmm. a fool according to his folly and do not answer a fool according to his folly. And the reason for that is because there are contexts in which either of those would be appropriate. It takes a great deal of wisdom to know when that is. And so, I mean, we've seen too many times recently situations in which people have said, well, I mean, that's obviously just ridiculous. Let's not Mm -hmm. even dignify it with the response. And next thing you know, it becomes right. the new mainstream. What's yep. so dangerous about RFK Jr., and I do think it's because of the crazy stuff that he's saying, in addition to the name, because mm-hmm. of the places where he's going to spread this stuff are conspiratorial places, usually on the far right, right. that are saying, look, Bobby Kennedy's son is telling us about transgender tadpoles or whatever. And so, therefore, that gives it this sort of bipartisan (laughs) credibility. (laughs) And the implications of it are dangerous because it's not so much that you have people who listen to Robert F. Kennedy Jr. and conclude, oh, COVID's a conspiracy by Jewish and Chinese people. It's that instead this filters down. And you have people who start to say, now, wait a minute, I'm supposed to get my child vaccinated, but is that Mm -hmm. going to cause autism? And then they start to say, as one person said to me, well, we do have a lot more autistic kids in the school than we had when, Mm. when we were in school. No, we don't. We have actual diagnosis and treatment for autistic kids more than we had before. But when you start to say that, you start to say, well, maybe, maybe I shouldn't have my child inoculated from measles. That's life or death stuff. Exactly. So it's it's a hard question as to how to knock this stuff down without giving it the platform and dignity it wants. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's this famous quote where it was after the, the Second World War, I believe it was the Prime Minister of Belgium, who they asked, you know, how, when, how will history tell the story of the Second World War? And he says, well, one thing I know is that they won't say that Belgium invaded Germany, right? Yeah. The fact is that like when when you think about kind of the world we live in right now, 
where because of the way the internet and social media and the proliferation of, of media, the proliferation of media outlets and personalities, like the only reason no one would have been able to go around in the 1950s and 60s and say World War II started because Belgium invaded Germany is because there were institutions and people with the credibility to say, no, that's not what happened. Yeah. And they had the trust to do it. The fact is that today, there are probably people on the internet saying, well, the reason there's a war in Ukraine right now is because Ukraine declared war on Russia, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Facts are objective truths. Like there are objective truths. There are objectively true facts. But people only accept things as fact based upon their willingness to trust the people who are talking. And I think part of what's so scary to me about post-Trump politics, but, you know, 21st century politics in general, is that we've come to such a place of distrust that it's kind of like when you think about how do you confront an RFK style denier, like how you you were talking about, do you debate him? Do you bring your facts to the case? Well, I'm like, I get the argument for sort of taking it head on. The problem is he's not going to obey the rules that you would obey. And and if you want to just even see that at work, go watch Mm -hmm. any news clips of Mm -hmm. a scientist who's been brought on to try and answer RFK's claims. Like there was one that I thought was just absolutely fascinating. It was on something on the Hill. They had someone on to say, okay, RFK is saying these things about atrazine and frogs and all this. Like, tell me what it is. And it took this poor guy like eight minutes to say, okay, here's the study. Here's what it did say. So there is this little measure of truth, blah, 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 before he was able to get down to saying, but of course, what he's saying is complete nonsense and has nothing to do with reality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's playing by a different set of rules than the conspiracy theorists, yeah. the Joe right. Rogans, the others will do because he's – what is he doing? He's bringing facts. He's bringing notes. He's got his mm-hmm. footnotes. He can document you know, all that. Goes. The conspiracy theorists don't do that. By their nature, they don't do that. They just sort of appeal to this – preconceived common mm-hmm. sense of, well, they're not telling you this. This is what mm-hmm. they don't want you to know. You know, this is what they're in it for because they're out for all this money and all of this. They rely on all of that sort of presumptive ill will against you, which is why you need to believe the conspiracy theory so mm-hmm. you can be, you know, freed from these people and their their efforts to control it. It's just a different game. Yeah. And and the the argue the fact that the argument itself is even ha- happening is used to prop up the conspiracy mm-hmm. theory because mm-hmm. it's well, see, they're responding to this because of course they don't want you to know. The dogs are barking because we're hitting them and we're showing you what's really going on and they're trying to confuse you with all of this data. That's why I say I'm conflicted about it. And it's not just it's not just in these terms, but if you look at the way this goes on in local churches, for instance, you can have a, a pastor who will stand up and say, okay, let's look at what Scripture teaches and walk through the Scripture, as you say, playing by an entirely different set of rules and the right set of rules, but somebody who's wanting to say, uh, well, you know, I could think of a thousand sorts of wild conspiracy theories that can go on in a church setting. We'll simply say, oh, he's the very fact that he's going through this argument this way, rather than just responding with an equally but opposite outrageous statement, proves that we're right. That yeah. is very difficult to yeah. deal with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This week I had the privilege of being at St. Mary's Seminary and University, and I was speaking for a class of demon students on the the title of the class was enculturating ministry. So the conversation at the end came down to how do you convince your family members and your congregation, you know, the people who are in your congregation of something that you know is true, but they believe is false. And we had this really deep conversation. And what came out of the discussion was Everybody knows your family's kind of like the final frontier. They're the hardest to convince. They're with you, whether you like them or not. But also, that's the space where these kinds of racist, often sexist, wrong, ignorant comments will come up. They come up at the dinner table. They come up in the Bible study. Well, you know, those people, you know, they're, that, that's where the China virus is. Or, well, you know, the, those people are protected because they engineered the virus. I mean, this is where it comes up. So in the conversation, though, part of the tactic that was discussed is sometimes you can't just tell them the truth and leave it there. Sometimes you have to provoke doubt in their perspective. Do you really think that all Jews are immune? Do you really think that 
the Chinese are trying to discern the right next COVID to infect the world and protect themselves. Let's really probe what you're saying. And what happens, what we talked about in the class is what happens is, well, no, 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 I'm not saying that. Okay, well, let's let's unpack what you are saying. And we don't always have that luxury. We do not always have that luxury with pundits or with politicians, but perhaps we'll have that chance with family members. Perhaps we'll have that chance in the church. And this is, I think, where your discipleship has to come in because you have to be able to ask questions. Isn't that what Jesus did? I mean, (laughs) you got to be able to ask a question that's just enough to prayerfully provoke a little bit of doubt. I just want to head off a conspiracy theory of our own here for listeners who aren't familiar with D men students. That's Dr. Administration. I was going to say the same she, thing. She wasn't teaching D men students. So <laughs> screw tape letters comes to the bulletin. That's exactly right. <laughs> yes, that's right. Thank you for that correction. <laughs> well, okay. So, so let me. While we're on the subject of devils and demons, let me let me do a devil's advocate <laughs> side of the argument for a moment here. Which I only say that in, in sort of half half truth because I do think there's something to this. The flip side of the conspiracy theory problem is, you know, the, the, the part of I'll put it this way: part of the problem with the erosion of trust in authorities and institutions is that there are a lot of authorities and institutions who have given us a lot of reasons not to trust them. Right. That's right. And you know, you mentioned you know talking about COVID. COVID is one of those things where the way that information about COVID was communicated, the way that the, you know, here's how it's transmitted, here's how it's not transmitted, you need medical gear, you don't need medical protective gear, actually you do need medical protective gear, Mm -hmm. don't say it came from a lab in Wuhan, that's a a conspiracy theory, now all evidence, you know, (laughs) there's a a pretty solid consensus that the fact that a, you know, a, a strange mutated COVID virus came out of a lab in Wuhan, China that manipulates COVID viruses for medical research purposes. Uh, John Stewart had the best line on that. He said, you know, if there was an infection of, of Hershey's chocolate that came in Hershey's Pennsylvania, you know, no one would be sitting around going, where possibly in Hershey, Pennsylvania, could the, the Hershey chocolate virus have, have possibly come from? It comes from the Hershey factory. Anyway, mm-hmm. there is something to this, though, where we we have this trouble with with institutional leaders, with political leaders, with media, with others, where there is this erosion of trust. And so it's this double-edged sword. It's like, how do we call for accountability when authorities give us reason for a lack of trust or tell us some things that aren't true, and at the same time, fight to be sort of discerning and wise about misinformation and conspiracy theories, which are both happening at the same time? Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I mean, Mike, obviously, I think that there are... uh institutions that aren't worthy of trust uh, right now. That's a key part of our problem. But a lot of this, including the examples that, that you're giving, it's just one more example of people defying the basic rules of science and conversation. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. to, to go in and to say, well, look, First, they said you need to spray down your surfaces, and then later they said that's not how COVID transmits. Well, that's not because you had someone plotting in a room saying we really want a lot of bleach used on surfaces, so we'll say this for now and then we'll say something later. Any more than they were saying at first, you, you shouldn't be wearing masks and protective gear that we need for doctors. And then later said, we do think that's how science works. You don't come in with, okay, here is the complete revelation of what's going on. It works by saying, okay, we think that this is the way to go. Turns out that's not, let's go this way. And so even when that happens, it starts to be used and weaponized in that way. And so I think, I think part of it is that is that there's, there's really no way for some of these authorities to actually communicate and take people seriously as mature adults without someone saying the very fact that they're doing this proves that I'm right. That's the, that's yeah. the quagmire here. Yeah. And the, the, there has to be a certain built-in resistance to the sweeping generalizations that can come from information that's shared. So just because there is 
insight about where the virus came from does not mean that all Chinese people were in on some effort to annihilate the rest of the world. And even when there is evidence that demonstrates certain immunities in certain people groups, that cannot be used to make sweeping, I mean, I'm speaking to the choir, but that cannot be used to make sweeping generalizations about people. This is exactly what I think the church has to build a resistance toward. How do we interpret information, understand current events, and yet resist the urge to categorize, demonize, there we go with that word again, how do we not make demons out of, you know, people that that uh, may be, you know, at least uh, peripherally linked to a certain group of people or a certain set of events? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and the infection of the Hershey bars coming from Hershey, <laughs> Pennsylvania might be because there's an infection put into it by a worker who didn't wash his hands oh, as opposed Lord. to Willy Wonka trying to uh, poison America with chocolate. I mean, so you, 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 even, <laughs> that's even right. when that's the case, you have to... <laughs> right, right, right. Oh man, now we're down we're down the rabbit hole. I mean, yes, I think we one are. way we stop we, one way we stop, you know, people demonizing people is that we stop sending them to Nicole's demon classes. Yeah, you know, right. that, uh, will that will help. That will help. You will She's not have demons if you don't class take demon class. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. All right, we will be right back. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m., we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying and sirens go off and they're, and they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come come here? Why? I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't... I, I didn't come home. But they, all my friends that were here were murdered. Here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. So this week in country music news, by the way, that's a phrase I did not expect to be part of my <laughs> professional life at, at any point up until today, I guess. And um, then you met Russell Moore. And then I met That's Russell Moore. Great. <laughs> so this week in country music news, Jason Aldean is a single. It's been out for a few months, but the song is called Try That in a Small Town. Got quite a lot of attention online this weekend because there's a lot about the song. Well, you know what? Let me just hand this over to our resident country music authority, Dr. Russell Moore. Russell Moore, tell us about Try that in a small town. Well, I mean, the the thing that's caused such uh, controversy is the lyrics include language about if you try to take uh, my guns and uh, language about what appears to be vigilante justice against uh, criminals. It fits in, in one sense, with a, a larger sort of debate that's gone on, including within country music, this idea of contrasting real small town rural America with the problem and the problem is happening in the urban areas. So uh, Oki from Muskogee, for instance, Merle Haggard in the 1960s and early 70s, which was very controversial and Haggard himself felt odd about it. He later said, I was, I was saying that as a satire of a real idea in American life, but it was used by people in a different way. Or uh, think about at the beginning of the post-September 11th era, the Dixie Chicks, now known as the Chicks, criticized uh, the war and President Bush. And that was responded to with uh, a lot of Toby Keith songs that were very jingoistic and real America is going to oppose uh, that. So there's a tradition that Jason Aldean is fitting into 
But the problem is the language here is very violent. And there are many people who are saying this is a pro-lynching song. Aldine is saying it doesn't have anything to do with lynching because it's not talking about race at all. Well, yes. But if you start talking about vigilante violence against people and uh, particularly rural America against urban America, when for a lot of people, urban is a coded way of saying black people, I mean, what are you thinking? I mean, I, 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 I don't understand who let this get out of the studio in 2023. But as in American culture wars, generally what you're going to see is the very fact that this is being critiqued is going to bring forward a backlash of support. I mean, that's that's the way this works in, in almost any artistic form. And, you know, the idea of infusing politics and music is not new to American culture. I mean, you can even look at hip hop in the 80s and 90s and the challenges of hip hop artists and rappers bringing politics into their music. I mean, this is rappers saying, I'm black and I'm proud. This is rappers even saying, um, you know, let our, our our prisoners go in Iran. I mean, this was, this was a time when music was expressive, particularly for those who didn't have voice and for communities who needed an outlet. I think the difference here is the dynamic of power. So you go back to Jason's history. He's taking pictures with Trump. He's coming out publicly and talking about, you know, his conservative views. And now he's giving this kind of rallying call to a group of people who also feel disenfranchised, but as we know from January 6th, are also willing to do something different about it. And I know, I know that that might seem like pitting one side against the other. God knows we do not want to pit hip hop against country music. We do not want to pit them against each other because in some ways, I mean, some might argue they're very similar. This is the heart language of groups of people who are looking for ways to express their personal experiences and putting lyrics to them in ways that would resonate with their communities. So Jason is probably like, I didn't write the song for people in the urban communities. I wrote it for people in the small town. Yes, and look at the context in which this song was written. Look at what happens when people listen to this song and think of it as their rallying call. What is your responsibility as a creative artist in this time to spread a message that will hopefully inspire people and not to get them excited about vigilante justice? I mean, it's a thin line. Even as I'm talking about it, I know that it's, it is a thin line that we have to walk, but it goes back to responsibility. Even today, artists have responsibility for the crowds that they inspire. And it, taking even the most charitable view of the, the, the lyrics of the song, there's a way to do this, to mm-hmm. say, look, I come from a small town where we actually uh, care about each other and we know who one another is and the rest of the country could learn from that in the same way that you can have hip hop uh, music that's talking about this is the way we do it Mm -hmm, in mm -hmm. wherever the place is. Uh, You can do that in a way that doesn't bleed over into violence, especially at a time when violence is not metaphorical domestically. I mean, even I talked about Merle Haggard, even you're walking on the fighting side of me in the context of the the Vietnam War against uh, anti-war protesters was very obviously uh, metaphorical. It's not in 2023 Mm -hmm. America, Mm -hmm. in in which people are actually sitting around thinking about civil war and talking about civil war, something we would never have imagined even having conversations about. Mm -hmm. I was in a room with a very responsible, mature, wise, experienced leader who said, you know, I don't know what's going to happen because there are a lot of guns in rural America. There are also a lot of guns in Chicago and and New Orleans and Los Angeles. So I'm not really sure who would win the Civil War. And I just stopped and said, the very fact that we're having this Mm -hmm. conversation is terrifying, that that would be anything other than just ridiculous, the Mm -hmm. idea that there would be Civil War II. But the very fact Mm -hmm. that we're thinking about that means there's an extra responsibility right now. And that's a responsibility in urban America and rural America on the left and on the right. Mm-hmm. Country music and hip hop. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I, th- I think the degree to which this plays on tropes is part of what mm-hmm. makes it just so ugly. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and it's part of what makes it really kind of indefensible as well. Yes. 
because people know what some of this stuff means. There was one funny comment that I read at one point. Somebody pointed out like the first line of the song says, you know, suckers punch somebody on a sidewalk, carjack an old lady at a red light, pull out a, pull out a gun at a liquor store. You think it's cool. Well, act a fool if you like. And the, one of the comments was, you know, the first line being a, a reference to like the, the knockout game, which was this mm-hmm. mostly a hoax, mostly sort of an urban myth of, of, of this idea that there was a game where you had to go punch somebody in the street. Again, mostly a, a hoax, but in the few places where such crimes took place and prosecutions took place, the targets were Orthodox Jews in Brooklyn. The vast majority of carjacking victims, I think African-Americans are uh, nine times more likely to be carjacked than white Americans. And so some somebody's comment was, well, maybe he's just really concerned about Orthodox Jews and black people getting oh, heart boy. carjacked. You know, it was <laughs> obviously a sarcastic comment. Yeah. But, yeah. but again, he's, he's playing to these tropes and yeah. it is performative. It is, yeah. it is politically performative. It is, it is capitalizing on the anger of culture war to pull all of this kind of stuff in. I would want to point out just two other things. One is he's from Macon, Georgia, a town of 150 some odd thousand people, the 164th largest town in the United States. Not mm. exactly a small town. Um, <laughs> number two, the, the by far the best comment on the subject was a tweet from singer-songwriter Jason Isbell, who said, my challenge to Jason Aldean would be just to write his own song the next time. <laughs> Since yeah. uh, he was one of uh, one of four songwriters. In fact, uh, our producer Matt pointed out Jason Aldean's not actually even one of the the songwriters on the mm. song at, at all. Yeah, and I'm, as you know, more of a Waylon Jennings country music fan than a Taylor Swift music fan. But I think she's right when she says it must be exhausting always rooting for the antihero. <laughs> uh, and and there is yeah. there is a sense yeah. in country music where this kind Ooh. of uh, let's just uh, let's just communicate the appetites, whether that's mm. sex and and uh, drunkenness or rage and violence that isn't consistent with the way country music works. I mean, Mm -hmm. despite all the the Mm -hmm. caricature, yeah, there's a lot about drunkenness and divorce and marriage breakup and, and so forth, but it's always been put in the context of a tragic side, a Mm -hmm. holistic view of human life. This is just easy adrenal sort of, sort of manipulation. Yeah. yeah, it's it's Toby Keith's a rock war song, you know, put shove a boot up there, you know what? So yeah, yeah. Although I mean, oh, I I, I I I actually really uh, really liked that song at the time. Oh. I think it, uh, yeah, there I, I, there's some bad bad lyrical oh, themes to it, but there was something kind of cathartic at the time of saying, you know, you knock down our towers, just, uh, we're going to light up your world like the 4th of July. Uh, <laughs> Fair enough. But Fair not enough. me. I'm the problem. It's me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That was perfectly stated. Well, great. between that and the, uh, the Taylor Swift reference, I think that makes for a full show for us this week. Uh, <laughs> Nicole, Russ, thanks for joining me today. Thanks to all of you for listening, and we will see you back here next week. The Bulletin is a production of Christianity Today. It's executive produced by Eric Petrick. It's produced by Matt Stevens. It's hosted by Russell Moore and Mike Cosper. Azure Phelps is our associate producer. The show is edited and mixed by TJ Hester. Graphic design by Brian Todd. Additional design by Amy Jones. Music by Dan Phelps. Social media by Kate Lucky. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms. CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com/equip.